Tennell from Galton, Pennsylvania, John Prince's brother-in-law. Uh, we married sisters, and two weeks ago, I, I, I told you I'd start with an apology. Here's the apology. Uh, two weeks ago or a little more, I was speaking with Pastor Prince on the phone, and I said if it would help, I happen to have speakers the first two Sundays at my church in May, and I'd be glad to fill in. So I didn't think much of it. I was speaking with my wife. I said I talked to, you know, your pastor, and... Uh, they said, well, Dathan's going to church. He's got an assistant there, so they'll probably be speaking. Okay, fine. Well, then uh, and a few days went by, and I got a phone call. Uh, you know, could you speak the second Sunday? And I said, yeah, that, that'd be fine. And, and almost from the instant, uh, I knew what I was going to speak. And I didn't, I didn't look at a calendar. I didn't realize this would be Mother's Day, and this isn't a Mother's Day message, but it's a local church message, and it's something near and dear to my heart, and I think you'll get a blessing from it. Uh, it's, it's about ministry. And... Uh, one of, one of the things that's uh, amazing to me is, is how many uh, young men can go to a Bible college or a seminary and get through and not come out with a love for the local church. Uh, we're, we're told, Paul, Paul tells a uh, senior pastor, tells a younger pastor, that the church is the pillar and ground of the truth. That seems pretty important. Uh, Paul writes to the Ephesian believers that God is making known his manifest wisdom to the church, through the church, to the powers that be, the principalities and powers that be. So I know those passages might be taken as the universal church, but as the local church goes, so goes the universal church. So if you have your Bibles this morning, and I trust you do, turn with me to First Timothy. We're going to be doing something that I seldom do, and that is looking at multiple passages. But to get the impact, we really need to do that. And I would encourage you to stay up with me and follow. I don't have many. I got five points we're going to go through very quickly. And this is specifically about those that you call pastor. Christians are encouraged to know them that labor among you and esteem them very highly for their work's sake. But very often we don't understand the atmosphere, much less the job of those that we, we call pastor. And so uh, th- this is kind of a unique approach that you're going to see. And by the way, I preached this message before. That's, that's why I knew I was going to speak on it. It's uh, uh, in December. I was approaching uh, 26 years at my church. And uh, the Lord laid it on my heart. I think on our website it's the first message you can listen to. That's more personal. This is more generic, but the principles are the same. And, it, and it's what God wants me to speak this morning. So I, I, I think I'm on uh, uh, good, good, good ground, good footing with this. One of the things we tend to miss about uh, the pastoral epistles, First and Second Timothy and Titus, is that they are unique in God's word. They, they are a senior pastor, a guy who's been around, a guy who's on his way out, actually, taking under wing and writing to a junior guy, a guy who's starting out, and he's telling him all about the ministry. And, and, and here's, a, here's a concept for you. It's uh, what I call uh, inside of the, the cover of your Bible uh, philosophy. It will help you in understanding God's Word immensely. Uh, one meaning, multiple applications. One meaning, multiple applications. Uh, my, my, my problem with modern homiletics is we're so quick to get to the... Uh, applications that very often we miss the meaning. And uh, the pastors that I've spoken with about 
what I'm going to share with you, their eyes lit up and they said, oh, I've never thought about it that way. When, when we go through First and Second Timothy and Titus, we're, we're looking at a job description, really, from a guy who's been there and done that to, to those who are going to be following after him. And that's what I'm going to be talking to you uh, about. Anyhow, uh, let me have my first slide, Sola, and uh, we'll see how that looks. Why the pastor irritates you. That's the title of the message. Uh, <clears throat> when, uh, when my leadership found out that that was the title of the message, I talked to him about it. It was funny. Uh, several of them offered to help me with it. <clears throat> so the following list will include one or more reasons why any good pastor might irritate you. And it's not something a pastor sets out to do. It's something that just kind of goes along with the job. I imagine it being a little bit like an IRS agent. If you tell people you're an IRS agent, a lot of them take a disliking to you, uh, not because of you, but because of what you do. But if a pastor has ever irritated you, you are not alone. Uh, lots of believers have been irritated by lots of pastors through the centuries uh, and uh, since the local church has been in existence. But I think what we're going to go through together this morning will give you a, a, an insider's look. And, and uh, I think it will be very, uh, very helpful to you. We're actually going to find, and this is amazing to me, the names of those that gave Pastor Paul a hard time. He writes down their names. God's word is for all eternity, isn't it? He writes their names down? I mean, imagine the flack a pastor would take if he started naming names. But that's exactly what Paul does, and he does it because Timothy knows some of these individuals. So that's what we're going to be looking at together. First of all, he is in a war, point number one. He is in a war. He is in a war. This truth is seldom taken literally. Look with me at 118, 1 Timothy 118. This charge I commit unto thee, son Timothy, according to the prophecies which went before on thee, that thou by them might war a good warfare. There are over half a dozen references, just in First and Second Timothy alone, I didn't even bother to go into Titus, about war, warfare, being a soldier. Do you think he was just, you know, let's see, what metaphor can I use? Why did that come to his mind? Now, he's well aware of warfare. It, it's terrible. In fact, it was even worse back then. It was face-to-face, hand-to-hand, with, with iron instruments, they stabbed one another. They, they slaughtered one another. It, it's, a, it's a terrible image. But that's the image he chose. Oh, you want to go into ministry? <laughs> you just signed up for something. The term war and all the image of conflict and suffering and destruction that accompany the word are intended both by the apostle and the Holy Spirit. The elders here know exactly what I referred to. How many nights has your sleep escaped you? Because the flock is on your mind. How often have we looked back and seen how the enemy has set us up for failure? One of the sorry tasks a a pastor has to do is mend fences, put out fires, bind up the, the wounded. And in so doing, the whole story comes out. Well, this person took what was said this way and, and, you know, over here, this person took what was said another way and then these two got together and it was a nuclear reaction. We're in a war. We are in a war. We can only watch sometimes as believers, Christians, take the bait. And then we spend inordinate amounts of time trying to fix things, 
because the enemy has destroyed things of eternal value, of eternal value. You know, there's, there's God's plan, big picture, and then there's your plan and my plan. And guess whose is more important? I mean, just off the top of your head. Yeah, I mean, it's a no-brainer. We know that as believers, but for some reason, we keep falling into the same pitfalls and traps, keep taking the same bait. The enemy's tactics have remained constant. First Timothy chapter 4, look at verse 1. The Spirit speaks expressly that in the latter days, and I believe we are living in them, Some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of demons. Who do you suppose they are that are departing from the faith? Believers. Church people. This verse isn't about people that are out there. This verse is about people that are in here. Remember the context. Older pastor, younger pastor. And he's telling them, this is what's going to happen in your ministry, Timothy. This is what's going to take place. There is a demonic atmosphere in this verse, and Paul warns Pastor Timothy it can come into the local church. By the way, the same seducing spirits that he's talking about here in the first century are still around today. They've not departed. They don't die. They're they're still around, and they've gotten very, very good at what they do. Very good. Satan is a seducer of the saints. He doesn't care about the lost. He has them. He is a seducer of the saints. He is to the believer what Tokyo Rose was to the Marines fighting in the Pacific during World War II. Look with me at 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 15. For some already turned aside after Satan. By the way, Satan is mentioned more in these two books than any other book of the Bible. Satan, the adversary, the devil. Uh, He's mentioned twice just in the job description of a pastor. Twice, just in the job description of a pastor. If you ever wonder who your pastor's primary adversary is, it isn't the choir director, the ladies' missionary fellowship, it's not the board of elders, you know, it's it's Lucifer. Now, he's going to use all those and more beside because he is a seducer and he's been very successful with this. Casualties abound in the war between good and evil. It is not painless to be constantly in the forefront of the battle. So let me tell you something about your pastor. Like most sergeants, like most lieutenants in a war movie, it's easy for a pastor to seem abrasive. It's easy because you don't know what he's just gone through. You don't, you don't know who he just got done talking to. You don't know what's on his heart, what's on his mind. And he can seem abrasive, particularly to those who think ministry is one big Sunday school picnic. You know, great time, great time. Others in the church fellowship are convinced their spiritual hangnail deserves the same attention as the wayward teen, the marriage in crisis, uh, someone facing a a health crisis, or a lost person. And and we have to constantly, you know, we're we're doing triage all the time. All the time. Who who, who gets our attention? Who's first on the list? Look with me at 1 Timothy uh, 5. 15. I believe that's what I want. No, we just looked at that one. 6.12. I'm sorry. 1 Timothy 6 verse 12. Fight the good fight. There it is again. Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life whereinto thou art also called and hast professed a good profession before many witnesses. Pastors are called to fight. 
because they are wrestling with something, and I'm just telling you my experience, 38 years in ministry, pretty much all the time, pretty much all the time. In fact, uh, I'm, I'm going to digress. You, you guys are giving me more time than I normally have, so I'll digress. Uh, one time, there's, a, there's an old Sunday school curriculum put out by regular Baptist press called I Love Thy Church, and I've taught it half a dozen times, and it's a it's really great Sunday school curriculum. It, it's out of print now, but I, I still have all my material and so on. We, we were in the eighth or ninth week, and... Uh, a fellow retired banker, he'd been coming to our church a couple of years, and he was in the Sunday school class, and, and he raised his hand, and I know why he asked this question, but he said, uh, he goes, Pastor, don't you find that the ministry is just fun? Now, I know why he said that. I, I have an assistant. We're about the same age. We, we identify and click and connect. We get along really well together. We've got the same sense of humor, and, and we do, we joke around a lot. And I, and I think we joke around a lot for a reason. I'm about to tell you. I, that, that's how we ended the class, you know, don't you find you have a lot of fun? And I was speechless. I, I said, uh, Gary, I don't know what to tell you. I said, we'll take that up next week. So next week comes in, and it dawned on me. God gave me an answer. I, I said, how many of you have ever seen that old TV show with Alan Alda, MASH? I said, that's what ministry's like. I said it's a sitcom, but if you were a follower of MASH, those guys were up to their elbows in blood and gore every week. And the reason it was comedic was because it was comedic relief from the reality of their lives. If you watch that program, the the last episode was one of the most watched TV shows ever, but nobody liked it because Alan Alda was on a bus and he had lost his mind. He couldn't take it anymore. I said, that's, that's what ministry's like. It's, it's like the MASH TV show. Yeah, if, if we're making it look easy, hey, that's, that's great. While all the redeemed, I want to be real clear on this one point, all the redeemed are called to be soldiers of Christ. You're called to put on uh, the, the armor of God, to fight a good fight. Pastors are professional soldiers. And there's a big difference between a professional soldier and a weekend warrior. Look with me at 2 Timothy 2. 2 Timothy 2 and verse 4. And the things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit thou unto faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. And look at verse 4. No man that wars, there's our image once again, no man that wars entangles himself with the affairs of this life that he may please him who hath chosen him to be a soldier. Look at verse 3. Thou therefore endure hardness, as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Senior pastor writing to a junior pastor, one meaning, pastor, lots of applications, you, you guys. But don't miss this. Don't miss this. Very, very important point. There is a unique vantage point. Second Timothy chapter 3. Look at chapter 3. Uh, I want to look at verses 10 through 12. But thou hast fully known my doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, charity, patience, persecutions, afflictions, which came to me, and I always substitute a Wego, Lacey, Villain, Galton for these three instead of Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra. What persecutions I endured, but out of them the Lord delivered me. Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. One meaning, lots of applications. Pastors have a unique perception and perspective on those verses. Multiple applications. For a pastor, failure will be more frequent than success in this life. And peace, 
That will only come when we stand before the Lord. Point number two, he has human adversaries. I apologize if that looks like anybody here. I just picked a picture out of the... One of the biggest shocks any pastor will have upon entering ministry are those from within his church that dislike and fight against him. It's, it's, it's kind of amazing. I, uh, through, through the years, I've had lots of young guys that I've known go into ministry, and they, I'm an old guy now, so they keep in touch with me. You know, here, here's what happened. And they're always like in disbelief, but, you know, but this guy's a deacon or she's a Sunday school teacher. And, and I said, yeah, you know, and guess what? It could be anybody. It's not you. It's the devil. And he's really good at what he does. Uh, the Apostle Paul was not reluctant, as I mentioned before. Turn back with me to 1 Timothy. We're going to start and go through again. Chapter 1, verses 19 and 20. He was not reluctant to name names. Holding faith and a good conscience, which some have put away concerning faith, have made shipwreck. He's not talking about people outside of the church. He's talking about people inside of the church. And then he names a couple guys, of whom is Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have delivered unto Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. I think Paul was very anxious to get these guys off of his chest. Now, we might debate what being delivered to Satan means, but we can surely agree that it was not something good, okay? This doesn't mean they lost their faith. It means they became really bad examples, really bad examples. By the way, have you ever thought for a believer what it's going to be like according to uh, uh, Corinthians uh, 3, uh, the wood, hay, and stubble? I mentioned the other day in a prayer meeting, I said, I'm really not looking forward to the judgment seat of Christ. And one of my older leaders came to me and he goes, what do you mean by that? I said, what I mean by that is I'm human and I failed and I fumbled the ball and it's not going to be all, you know, bouquets and compliments. There's wood, hay, and stubble to my life and I'm going to see it burn up. And if I fumbled the ball and I fouled up and, and I was a bad testimony for Jesus, you don't think he's going to tell me about it? He goes, well, our sins are forgiven. I said, well, there's sins of omission and sins of commission. I'm not looking forward to that. There's wood, hay, and stubble in our lives. Let's keep it to a minimum. Could we agree on that? Keep it. I mean, I'd rather have gold, silver, and precious stones, wouldn't you? But why did Paul mention wood, hay, and stubble? We're all going to give account. And, you know, when my dad said, you're going to give account... I didn't get real excited about that because I knew there was a downside to it. I knew he wasn't going to say, hey, let's go out for ice cream. He'd say, why isn't the lawn mowed? Didn't I tell you to mow the lawn? We have responsibilities as believers. Paul names these guys, and he delivers them to Satan. Now, they didn't lose their faith, but they strayed, and they strayed badly, I believe. Very often, God will correct believers to fix problems, but very often they have to be removed or they have to be cut loose from a fellowship. By Paul's logic, these men were guilty of blasphemy. Now, most of the time when we talk, and and the word blasphemy, blasphemy just means to speak against something, we tend to think of a denial of some cardinal doctrine, but you realize blasphemy can be anything, anything. Speaking against biblical principles is blasphemous. You know, God's truth, once and for all time delivered, the faith delivered according to Jude, once and for all time, and we speak against it? You don't think God's going to take issue with that? His, his word, his, his biblical principle? It can be speaking against the church. It can be speaking against God-ordained leadership. And I'm going back to the Old Testament for that. Do you remember what happened to Moses' adversaries? Sometimes within his own family? Food for thought. Look at 2 Timothy 1.15. 2 Timothy, 
115. Two men had influenced many against the Apostle Paul. This thou knowest, and this was something Timothy was aware of, that all they which are in Asia be turned away from me, of whom are Phagellus and Hermogenes. By the way, Timothy pastored in Ephesus for a while. I'm not sure about the timing of this letter. He may have been there then, but uh, probably not. But at this point in time, these two guys had influenced all the believers in Asia from Paul's perspective against him. Here's a fascinating thing when somebody's upset with a pastor. They're not content to leave it there, are they? They want everybody to be upset with the pastor. Hey, they go on a crusade. Wouldn't it be great if they could be that evangelistic? I mean, hey, you're going to tell somebody something? Go out and tell them about Jesus. Don't tell them, you know, you don't like the pastor. Amazing. And he names their names here. In other words, uh, circumstances are such that any man in that position is going to face such issues. I can't tell you how many times through the years. We've had a dozen men and women go into ministry, and I I can't tell you at at least three-quarters of them have gone through something like this. In fact, there's a young guy that took a a church not far from us, and uh, Melody and I took him out for lunch, him and his wife, a week or so ago. (laughs) We we weren't too far in the car. We we got talking. How are things going? Oh, things are fine. Well, yeah, things are fine. During lunch, we find out, like, you know, five families have left. Over what? Over stupid stuff. No, not doctrine. Not doctrine. Stupid stuff. And they're not content to do that they got to say bad things about him in the process. In the community that you're trying to reach for Christ, are you kidding me? And, and you think when you stand before Jesus, he's going to pat you on the back? I, I don't think so. I don't think so. Paul is alerting Pastor Timothy and others that it's good to know who's on the team and who's destroying the team. You see, the church in Asia turning from Paul, let's play this out a little bit, modern terms, meant the children's program was going to suffer. It meant the youth program was going to suffer. It meant the outreach program was going to suffer. It meant the Sunday school ministry was going to suffer. You see, when you go after your preacher and you go after your church because they didn't side with you, you're hurting the cause of Christ, big picture, the reason why we're here. It it would be comical if it weren't so tragic. The shepherd gets smitten. This is the devil's tactic. It's scriptural, by the way. And the sheep scatter, don't they? That's a psalm, isn't it, written of Jesus. Smite the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. And that's also true of local church ministries. There will always be those spiritual giants, tongue-in-cheek, who are critical of the pastor and his doctrine. Look with me at 2 Timothy 2.17. Two more men are named. 2 Timothy 2.17, and their word will eat as does a canker of whom is Hymenaeus and Philetus, who concerning the truth have erred, saying that the resurrection is past already and overthrow the faith of some. Now, these guys had a unique view of the resurrection, and uh, Paul couldn't correct it. Anybody that would listen to them, they would turn them away and overthrow the faith of many. You see, pastors possess a gift of discernment. Let me tell you what that means. It means they know what's worth talking about and what isn't worth talking about. But there will always be some who will insist that, you know, their doctrine, their belief needs to be promoted. Well, that's not a good idea. It's not a good idea at all. 
Increasingly, I hear from pastors that 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 7 is being fulfilled. Look there with me. This know also that in the last days perilous times shall come. Men shall be lovers of themselves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy. Let me take a time out. Do you think he's thinking about those out there or those in here? It's in here. I'll prove it to you. Verse 3. Without natural affection, truce breakers, false accusers, incontinent, uh, that is lacking self-control, fierce, despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God. And here's the kicker that tells us it's not those out there, it's those in here. Having a form of godliness. See, the people out there don't even have a form of godliness, but we do in here. We're pretty good at hypocrisy and pretense. We have a form of godliness, but Paul senior pastor writing to a junior pastor lists all these terrible things and he's telling them you're going to have people like this in your fellowship and they're going to have a form of godliness but they're going to deny the power thereof and he says turn away from those turn away from those profound truth so here's the takeaway don't think it's strange if your pastor seems on occasion cold and distant or worse, doesn't want to be your best friend. I I know it's difficult, the family that my wife was raised in, very gregarious, very outgoing. I keep my distance, I tend to be a loner, and it's gotten worse since I've been in the ministry. You see, a good pastor will not put his ministry in such a precarious position as to be a friend with everything that that implies, with someone he's trying to minister to. That ends very, very badly often. Next point. He has to make God's word his main business. He has to make God's word his main business. While this point might seem like a given, you would be amazed at how many Christians forget this about their pastor. It seems the saints are often intent on distracting and marginalizing the preeminent aspect of pastoral duty. And you all ought to know what that is. What's the primary thing for which a pastor is responsible? The truth can be observed throughout the pastoral epistles. Uh, turn back with me to 1 Timothy, uh, verse 1. Or, yeah, chapter 1 and verse 3. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 3, last word in there, teach no other doctrine. That that word doctrine occurs more more than six times. If you you parallel that with truth and the example that Paul had set in mentoring Timothy, there's over a dozen references to that which is set forth as as being true. Uh, I won't go through. I've got a big list here. We'll save the time. Anything that distracts from the presentation of truth from God's word which is the business of exalting God, edifying the saint, and evangelizing the lost, is a waste of time and effort. You recall when the early church was ready to elect deacons, the apostles said in Acts 6, they didn't want to neglect. We need deacons because we don't want to neglect our main business, the word and prayer. I still think that's the main business of the pastor, the word and prayer, ministering the word. When pastors get caught up helping to fix physical needs, by the way, your, your pastor didn't say anything to me. If I, you know, if I happen to hit upon something that's happened, I, it's by purely by chance. Uh, in, in fact, go back and listen to my message in December at my church. I did hit on some things that we all knew about there. But anyhow, 
uh, if he gets involved in menial tasks, you know, making repairs. Now, now I'm handy. I come from a blue-collar family. We, we do stuff. I can fix things. I can hang doors, and, I, and I've done that at my church. Uh, cement work, I've done that. Setting up for dinners, maintaining church vehicles, and a slew of other things. Uh, mow grass, I can do all that, and I do all of that. I even unclog toilets on occasion. So if you want my inside tips, come see me. I'll, I'm glad to share that information with you. But you know what? It gets frustrating when you are doing those things and you don't have time for the Word. When you don't have time to pray, when you don't have time to visit and do what God has called you to do. You see, if the devil can't deceive you, he'll distract you. And we find ourselves there. You know, this would be a good thing. There doesn't seem to be anybody else to do it, so I'll do it. I'll do it. But then you can get a little frustrated if that becomes the standard. Next point. We need to hurry on here. Uh, he must not be swayed by the culture. Turn with me to 1 Timothy 2. 1 Timothy 2. I'm going to read you some politically incorrect verses. He must not be swayed by the culture. 2.9. 1 Timothy 2.9. In like manner also that women adorn themselves in modest apparel. Hmm. With shamefacedness. And sobriety, not with woven hair or gold or pearls or costly array, but that which becomes women professing godliness with good works. Let the women learn in silence with all uh, submission. But I suffer not a woman to teach, nor to usurp authority over the man, but to be in silence. For Adam was first formed, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived was in the transgression. And uh, you get the idea. Do you have any idea how unpopular that passage is just now? I mean, any, any idea? Our culture, this is what's ironic to me, our culture loves to denigrate women in numerous ways. Numerous ways. And then it has the audacity to turn around the gall to accuse Orthodox Christianity of belittling women, which is crazy. If you understand Christianity and what it's done for uh, women, the, the underprivileged, the, the, the down-and-outers, I mean, it's, it's amazing the legacy of the church in this regard. And we're not discussing, when we look at these verses, culture says, well, you're looking at greater and lesser. And, and no, no, we aren't. Nor are we looking at authority as much as we are looking at responsibility. Who's going to be responsible? God has called men to be responsible. By the way, ladies, we don't like it any more than you do. We would much rather lay on the couch with a remote. You know, you guys do whatever you want to do. And I pity you, ladies, if you have a husband who doesn't take the initiative, who doesn't act responsibly, you know, you buy into the lie of the culture and you, and you suffer for it. And it's a tragedy because it's in the church. And the pastor, he's butting his head against this pretty much on a, on a weekly basis. Scriptures are constantly in conflict with the culture. Constantly. It doesn't matter if it's the Roman culture, the Greek culture, or the American culture. <coughs> Excuse me. A, a good pastor will be an oddity in the world in which he lives. For example, culture tells us we cannot control our emotions. Oh, you poor person. We can't control it. We can't control how well it's how I feel. Well, well, that's funny. You know, my Bible tells me what to love. God tells me what I'm to love and what I'm not to love. God tells me not to be fearful. God tells me what I ought to rejoice in. Correct me if I'm wrong, but they're all emotions. Very often, God tells me what I ought to be feeling and what I shouldn't be feeling, what's right and what's wrong. Amazing. 
amazing because it tells us all these things and it doesn't once mention happy pills. Isn't that funny? But in the Greek, it does mention in Revelation 9 and 18, the word pharmakeia in King James translated sorceries. We get our word pharmacy from it. Hmm, that's kind of interesting. That's been fulfilled in my lifetime, by the way, in the church, not outside of the church, in the church. Culture is having a much greater influence on believers, the church, than the church is on the culture. That's just my opinion. Feel free to take issue with it, but they are making inroads in the church way more than we are making inroads in the culture. Your pastor will see this and he will feel this keenly on a weekly basis. And and many men, sadly, I've seen this happen, many men, it just becomes so much easier to go with the flow. You know, if I, if, I, if I just back off on this a little bit, it'll be a lot easier for everybody. So, I, you know, I think that's what I'm going to do. And uh, I really like to examine the issues, but I don't have time. So I'll, I'll just back off on that. Last point. Last point, you've been very patient. He has to rebuke sin without partiality. And, th- and this is huge. Turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 5. 1 Timothy chapter 5. This last point of the pastoral job description has caused no end of irritation. 1 Timothy 5, look with me at uh, 20 and 21. Them that sin, rebuke before all, that others also may fear. I charge thee before God and the Lord Jesus Christ and the elect angels, that thou observe these things without preferring one another, doing nothing by partiality. Nobody likes to be corrected. I don't like it. You don't like it. I, I don't know of anybody that enjoys being told they're wrong or being corrected. And here's the thing. When we are corrected, it's comical to me how everybody knows for a fact that the pastor's being easier on some than he is on others. <laughs> you like him better. Uh, not really. I don't like either one of you. <clears throat> Truth be told. The command in verse 20 presumes either an unrepentant attitude or a persistence in wrongdoing. We don't typically make people in our church stand up and, you know, I read them the riot act and no. If they're repentant, different story. But if they're unrepentant, maybe we need to start naming names. Maybe we need to start, you know, Paul, Paul tells the church, like, if, if a brother's walking disorderly, that means out of step. Well, everybody needs to know about that. And maybe we can corporately, collectively, you know, salvage this person, bring, bring, bring them back. Most pastors attempt to handle internal problems in a low-key manner for, for the benefit of everyone. Very often there's innocent people uh, being involved. I, I've had to, in the 26 years I've been in Galton, I've had to deal with adultery a half a dozen times. And other than the last time, my wife hasn't known anything about it. My deacons only know two, two of the times because they were successful. They were successful. It worked out. So low-key if possible. If possible. Uh, By the way, when that guy asked me in Sunday school classes in the ministry fund, I went home and made a list. How many divorces, how many disciplines, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, adultery, wayward teens, people that have left the faith. It was really discouraging. It really was. But that's just part of the equation. There are men and women in ministry. There are churches that have been planted through our missions program. And so, you know, God's working his will in spite of us, not because of us many times, but in spite of us. 
It's easy to harm an entire church's testimony or innocent family members when you're dealing with sin. I get that. And your pastor has to be very careful. The elders have to be very careful. Uh, and, and, and besides this, I don't know what your community is like, but our community is terrible with gossip. It is a small town. And, and people just love, especially if it's about somebody from the church, you know. That, that circles, uh, Will Rogers had a saying that a lie will circle the globe before the truth gets its trousers on in the morning. And that's pretty close to the truth where we live. So why provide ammunitions? Uh, personally, I, I, I dislike making those visits to church members where I have to talk to them about sin. I do it, but I really do not like it at all. One last reference, 2 Timothy uh, chapter 4. 2 Timothy chapter 4. And I want to look at verses 2 and 3. 2 Timothy 4, 2 and 3. This is, this is a great verse. Preach the word. Be instant in season, out of season. Be consistent, in other words. And then notice these three words. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with all long-suffering and doctrine. For the time will come when they, and by this time you ought to know who the they are. It's the people in the church. The time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. We're not talking about people outside, we're talking about people inside. But after their own lust shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. You can see how a pastor might irritate people. The words reprove, rebuke, and exhort. First word means to rebuke or, or tell a fault. Uh, seldom does it go well when that's attempted. The second word that's translated rebuke in King James means to censure or to forbid. And very often I have to go see somebody and say, hey, if you're going to keep doing that, you know, there's going to be consequences. There's going to be consequences. The last word means to encourage, but few folks hang around long enough for that to take place, which explains why Timothy is told to be patient. To be patient, to stick to the truth, the doctrine, there it is once again, and these are very sobering, sobering thoughts for us to consider. I trust you are praying for your pastors. I trust you will continue to do that. One last slide. We're going to wind things up. There's lots of reasons why the pastor may irritate you, but the fact that you and your pastor have been together for so many years is a superb testimony to God's grace. It really is. May you continue to learn to truly love and appreciate all the family of God, including your pastor. Would you stand for the closing uh, song that you're going to uh, sing in just a moment here?